Good morning. All right, now I feel like you at least want to see me. I am the B team here. Uh, Pastor Alex is gone, and uh, I love that. I love that he's away, and I love that I can step in and, and help him out and give him uh, some rest. Uh, because believe it or not, standing up here every week and talking to all of you lovely people is hard work. As lovely as you are, having to talk for 45 minutes and the spiritual pressures that you feel and, the, and, you know, it's, it's, like a, it's like a battle, you know. There's someone who's trying to drag you down, and you're kind of a shepherd pastor guy, and you're trying to pull everybody up. But can I tell you something about pastors? The same person or being that's trying to drag you down is also trying to drag him down. So he gets hit with all of your problems and issues, and then the devil goes, well, if I could take out Pastor Alex then I could hurt all of you. Anybody here ever seen anybody get hurt by a pastor before? Come on, raise your hands. Like, wake up, ready? You ever seen it? You seen it on TV? Anybody ever heard of a guy named Jimmy Swaggart? All right, are you with me? Jim Baker, all those people, right? You've heard of all those people? Well, let me tell you something. Those are probably some good people that the devil went after, knowing that if they could take them down, he'd hurt all of you. And everybody would hear about it. And ultimately, the name of Jesus would get dragged down, right? That's the battle that Pastor Alex and, and Raquel are in every single week, and Kenny and Laura and your leaders. So you know what? You got to love on them. You got to keep them encouraged. You got to build them up. So this is my chance to help this church. Come up here for a couple weeks. Let them all take a break, except Kenny didn't get a break. He doesn't need one. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Pastor gets a break, and I get to step in and talk to you for a couple weeks and bear just a little itty, itty, itty bit of the burden because you want to know something? At the end of today, I get to go home, forget all about you. No, I'll still think about you, and I'll pray for you for a week, but then I'm just back to my own life. A pastor is always thinking about all of you. He's always, you want to know, I, I haven't talked to him about it, but want to know something? I know something. Every single week, he's watching that door right there. See that door? Everybody see that door? He wants to see it open and your bright, shining face roll in here. And he goes, ah, at least they came back for another week, right? You don't think that way? He's always thinking that way. He's trying to build a church and make it an exciting place and be a place where people love to come and people can find Jesus. So do your part. And be that encouraging person. And uh, I'm here this week to do my little bitty part. And I'm really glad to be here. Um, as Ken mentioned, we're in a series called Dave. And uh, we're talking about what happens to all of us. That, that moment, that decision that we have to make when our dreams aren't going to come true. And we're looking at two incredible stories from the life of Dave, we're calling him. But it's King David. Uh, from the Old Testament. We're looking at two stories from his life, and we're answering the question, what do we do? How do we handle it when our dreams aren't going to come true? Now, as children, when you were a child, you had big dreams, right? Um, did anybody here dream of being a runway model? I did not. I didn't. Trust me, I didn't. Or you dream of being an astronaut or a baseball player, um, a rock star. Kenny dreamed of being a rock star. I know it. I know it. Um, maybe some of you dreamed of being a water ski stuntman. Maybe not. Hopefully not, right? Um, but we all have dreams. They're not serious. Then we get older, and our dreams become more like expectations. We're going to get married, and then we're going to have children, 
And then those children are going to be good kids, well-adjusted, move out of the house, get good grades, have good jobs. We're going to have a career. We're going to have a nice house. We're going to have two cars. We're going to have a beach house. We're going to retire, and we're going to enjoy our grandkids. Those aren't really dreams anymore for most of us here. Those are all expectations. And then something happens. Maybe it's an illness. Um, Maybe it's a talent issue. You know, God didn't give you the talent to be wealthy. Maybe it's, you know, you realize I'm not going to get married by 30. I am married, but it's not going to be a good marriage, and my family isn't going to look like I thought it would be. Or I, I was married, I got remarried, and this second marriage is starting to feel a lot like my first marriage or an illness, or whatever it is, all of a sudden we get to the point where we had dreams with sort of our expectations, because I look at everybody else, and they seem to be living the dream, so I should be living the dream, and I deserve what they, des- what they have. In fact, honestly, I know a little bit about her, and I know a little bit about my sister and my brother-in-law, and I know about my parents, and they aren't even as good as I am. They don't even go to church. They don't even raise their hands in worship, right? You know? There are Christians, they go to church, but I, I, I've never seen her raise her hand in worship. I raise my hand in worship, God. Of all people, I deserve my dreams to come true. And we get the email, we get the note, we have the conversation. Someone else makes a decision that we can't even control. And all of a sudden, lights out on our dreams. It just isn't going to happen. This series is about what do you do when you realize that is the case. That's an emotional situation, right? There's a lot of hopelessness, a lot of helplessness. The river of hopelessness turns to a raging river of anger, right? And we do things that we never thought we would do. People do things that are harmful to them. In the moment when you realize that your dreams aren't going to come true and there's these emotions that easily turn to anger, Anger, people turn to the bottle, people turn to pills, people turn to vengeance, vengeance, and adults use children to get back at other adults, right? You know what I'm talking about. People turn to eating too much. All kinds of unhealthy things happen, and if you stripped away all the excuses and you dug deep into it, you would say, you know what? <laughs> You're angry because your dreams aren't coming true. And all of us have been there. All of us have tempted. And in that season of life, we have some of our biggest regrets, don't we? We've said things that we wish we wouldn't have said. We've done things that we wish we haven't done. Some of us, maybe you're back here today, possibly for the first time, or you're just back in church for the first time over the past couple months or whatever. Why? Because you went through a season of life, a couple years, maybe 10, 15 years. And the reason why you went through that season of life is because you were angry at God. God did not do for you what you thought he should do. And you turned your back on him. And you probably wrecked your life just enough and you're fortunate you're still alive and you still have the opportunity to re-engage with God. But you're back because your dreams didn't work out. You got angry at God and you really just complicated things by your response. This series is about two weeks. 
What do we do when our dreams don't turn out? What's our proper response? The good news is the Bible is full of characters, normal characters, right? You know, that's, you gotta, you gotta realize, you know, Abraham, you think, wow, Abraham was a really special guy. He's in the Bible and everybody knows about Abraham. No, Abraham was a dude like you living in Bel Air. And God showed up and said, you're going to be great and the whole world's going to know about you. And it'd be like, Abraham would have been like, really me? And then it happened, right? He was just a normal guy. The characters in the Bible are just normal people like you and I. And, and there's a God who's bigger and he uses people and he, and he changes their lives and he, and he works through ordinary people. And guess what? He still wants to work through ordinary people today. God wants to do great things in this church. God wants to transform your life and your family. God wants you to be great in this community, just like Abraham was great or David was great or Moses or the Apostle Paul or Timothy and all the great Bible characters. The good news is the Bible is made up of normal characters who make decisions and learn lessons just like you and I learn lessons. And we have a book that we can read a book that we can study, a book that we can think about, and the advantage that we have is we don't have to learn all the lessons the hard way. We can read and go, oh, I see where David, in last week's story, remember? He acted like all of us could relate to it. Things didn't work out, and what did he do? He went nuts. And some of you control, you know, control people. You're, you're, I'm, I'm, Certain situations, I'm a control freak, but in a lot of them, I can kind of be laid back a little bit. You're a control freak, man. When something doesn't go right, you're, you're, you're on it. And you're, you're, you're five steps ahead of the whole world. And you're fixing things, and you're knocking people off, and you're getting people fired because you see what's coming, and you're going to fix it. David did that. His dream wasn't going to come true. He took things into his own hands. People died right? Good. He pulled people into his plot that didn't even know there was a plot. If you missed last week, you can jump online and listen to it. Last week's story, I told it to you because you needed to hear it before I tell you this week's story. Because this week's story, Dave, King David, responds in a way that I cannot relate to unless I've learned the lesson or someone has told me the lesson. By the way, do you know why you go to church Do you want to know why? Because Christianity is not something that you can sit under a tree and have some philosophical moment like an apple comes down and hits you on the head and you're like, oh, I get it, Jesus. That wouldn't happen, right? The reason why Christianity is about gathering together and hearing someone talk about it is because Christianity is built on historical truths, lessons. It's the story of Jesus is a historical lesson. And unless someone tells it to you, you will never know it. Do you want to know why you've been given the task of telling other people about Jesus? The same reason. If you don't tell them about it, they'll never know about it. So we share the story with people, right? So King David here. He, he learns the lesson this week. Two stories, right? Last week, we can't relate to. This week's story, how he handles it, is so unbelievably good that, you know what, some of you are going to say? Can't be true. That's a Bible story. That's a myth. Are you seriously, Paul, asking me to respond this way? That's how good his response is this week. And in this week's response, we find the key. Because what happened is, David, when he was a young man, handled broken dreams wrongly. He learned the lesson. And later in life, he goes, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not complicating things worse. 
I'm going to handle it the right way. And we learn this critical lesson of how to handle our broken dreams. And it's critical. Before I get there, though, um, I want to say something to the men, all right? And I, I want to preface and remember, remember who we're talking about here. Because when you see how Dave handles this week's issue, you're going to say, he's too passive. He's not a manly man. He's, you know, whatever, you, you know, he's a girly guy, whatever you want to say. I would never handle things that way because I'm a, I'm a macho man. And I would feel that way about myself. But let's remember who we're talking about here. And let's just check in, man, on who's the real macho man here. Dave, when he was a teenager, killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. Any men here done that? Any men here want to try? No, I'm out, all right? I'm not even shooting a lion or a bear with a gun from a 1,000 yards, okay? I'm out of there. That's just me. All right. This is a guy who walked onto the battlefield. This is the same guy who we know for killing Goliath, right? With a slingshot. All right. I can probably tell you that I'm not walking single-handedly to go fight the largest man in the history of the world, right? Okay. I may go with my posse and some air support, all right? But I'm not going to do what Dave did, all right? This is a guy who the Bible tells us emerged from battle, drenched drenched in the blood of his own soldiers. Think gladiator. It was that gruesome. It was that, you know, massive. It was that physical that the Bible says he, he walked out of the battle drenched with the blood of his own men. This was a king who refused to sit back in the castle. He continually charged to the front lines to fight, and his own men would say, hey, Dave, stay in the castle. You're the king. You're more valuable there. Stay off the front lines. This is a guy who was a natural-born leader, recognized by his people that, remember from last week's story, he wasn't in line to be the king. He was chosen to be the king, and he rose right through the ranks because he's a natural-born leader. We're not talking about a passive individual. What we find in today's story is a man who has learned a critical lesson. And that is there's a time to set aside your macho man mentality. There's a time to appear to be, I don't know, less than a man. But in reality, you're not being less than a man. You're showing incredible strength when you set aside your ability to control, your ability to wipe people out, your ability to handle issues, your ability to yell, your ability to get anger, angry, your ability to retaliate, and you say, I'm not going to do that. I am going to put my faith in a God who can fix it all for me. That is what I want you to remember as we dig into this story. Before I read it to you, the story, let me give you the background, okay, because it gets really messy and it gets really crazy. David's king. He's 40, 50 years old. Um, his dreams have come true. He's the top of the, the kingdom. He's got many wives. He's got many children, uh, adult children. He has a legacy. He has a promise from God. I mean, things are good for King David. His firstborn son, Amnon, is in line to take over the throne. Amnon, this gets crazy, has fallen in love with his half-sister, Tamar. He puts together a plan where he fakes to be sick, invites her over to his, I don't know, probably castle of some sort. She comes over, cooks him a meal, and he rapes her. Amnon 
David's oldest son rapes David's daughter. This is bad, right? This is, this is the email you don't want to get. This is the situation your world is rocked. It's, it's really bad. He rapes her, and then he wants nothing to do with her. He says, get out. And she goes, no, no, no. I mean, I could probably go back to King David and ask him if I could be your wife. And he goes, no, I want nothing to do with you. He rapes her, and he, and he kicks her out. Okay, this is bad. For, for Dave, the king, it's his son who's in line to be king. If he presses charges or makes a big deal in the kingdom, he's making a big deal about his family, and he's making a big deal about his future king, the future king of the nation. At the same time, it's his daughter. Dave doesn't know what to do and decides to do nothing. All right? This is the story. You can read it in, in Samuel. In the meantime, Tamar goes to her other brother's house, Absalom, David's second son. Absalom takes her in, and Absalom is very much like King David. He's a natural-born leader. He's, he's handsome. He's a man of action. And Absalom decides that if dad isn't going to do anything about what my brother did, and I'm sure there's a little jealousy involved versus Amnon being the next king, and he's the second son. Absalom says, I'm going to do something about it. So he throws a big party a couple years later. He's still angry, and he throws a big party, invites his whole family, Dave, Abs, Amnon, brothers and sisters, all come to this party. Absalom waits for the right moment and murders Amnon, his older brother, right in front of the rest of the family. Well, that's the end of that party, right? You thought you've had some bad Thanksgiving and Christmases with your family? You should just be smiling forever and forever. At least it isn't bad as Dave's family, right? End of the party, Absalom immediately leaves the country, goes to Syria, and to the town of Gesher. Well, once again, word reaches King David that this has happened. What do you do? Your firstborn is dead. He was going to be the next king. He was killed by your second born, which is sort of your favorite son. You see in him the qualities of the next king. But now he's on the run. Your family is torn apart. Do you rest your second son? I mean, it's a complex situation. And David, again, does nothing. A few years pass, and there's this divide. And you know how families are? You can relate to this. You know, you have, you have brothers or sisters or parents sometimes, and, and you're estranged. And on one level, if they, weren't, if they were anything but family, you would never see them again. But because they're family, you never can really get over the fact that I, I do want to see them, or I still feel this connection to them. And you're just drawn into this crazy, you know, you can't live with them, and you can't live without them. Well, that's what's going on here. David misses Absalom, and Absalom misses David. They come up with a scenario where Absalom wants to move back to Jerusalem, and so Joab, the captain of David's army, goes out, makes the arrangement, brings Absalom back to Jerusalem, which is where David is living, and Absalom now lives again in the city of Jerusalem, but like true families, guess what? They never see each other. Absalom is now back in town, But David and Absalom never meet. And a couple years go by. Finally, they arrange for a meeting. Have you ever gone to one of those high expectation meetings where you have high hopes, your palms are sweaty, 
you just hope it's going to go well, but you know very well that it may not go well. Anybody ever had one of those type of meetings? You can raise your hands. You know, did, it, did you guys not put on deodorant? Because no one's raising their hands. All right? You, you had one of those meetings. Well, guess what? They had this meeting, and guess how it went? Not that great. Like, like yours, right? It, it just kind of went, okay, right? You, you wanted that hug, and you wanted it to, but there's too much junk, right? So Absalom leaves that meeting angry, and he leaves his father's presence. And for all we know, this is the last time that they saw each other, because this is where we pick up our story. Let me put it on the screen for you. You can read it for yourself in 2 Samuel 15, verse number 7. At the end of four years, it says, so Absalom has been back in Jerusalem for four years. And during that time, Absalom sat at the city gate. I'm not reading the verse. I'm just giving you some background. I see all of you looking at the verse. You're like, he can't read. No, I'm just telling you something. Then we'll go back to that verse, all right? Absalom sat at the city gate, right? And he was a judge of the people, an advisor to the people. So he was in with the people of Jerusalem and and the leaders of the city. And he was accessible. King Dave... Uh, like we see with our political leaders, they get in the White House or they get in Washington, D.C. for too long. And how do you feel? They don't know what we're like. They've lost touch with the common man. Well, that, that's what happened. Absalom's out at the gate talking to people, giving advice. He's, he's a natural born leader like his father. And he wins over the heart of the people of the city. They go, we like you, Absalom, because you're always out here talking to us. We feel like you, you feel us, right? So that sort of dynamic is happening. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, his father, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord while your servant was living at Geshur in Aram. And he was at Geshur in Aram after he had killed his, his um, brother, right? I made this vow, he says, if the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, his father said, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribe of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king of Hebron. And what is he doing here? He's creating a revolt against his own father. It's a bad day. It's a bad moment. And Hebron is a, is a strategic city and area in the kingdom, and he knew it. So he's going to go there, going to declare himself king, and then he's going to march to Jerusalem, gathering energy and forces, and then he's going to take out his father. And guess what? Did he not make it sound really spiritual? <laughs> Dad, I made a vow to God. <laughs> You can make anything you want to do sound spiritual. That's just a side note, all right? So just because you make it sound spiritual doesn't mean it's spiritual at all. Absalom is overtaking his own father, and he made it sound like God was involved, right? As parents, when our grown kids come to us and they say, God really wants me to do it, and you look at them like, you're full of crap, right? (laughs) Verse number 11, 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently. Again, Absalom draws them into his little uh, 
is uh, rebellion, and these people don't even know what's happening to them. You know, our sin always affects other people. Knowing nothing about the matter, while Absalom was offering sacrifice, he also sent for that guy. I'll let you just read his name. The Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and, Absalom fo- and Absalom's following kept on increasing. So he pulls out one of David's inner circle, and he draws them into his camp, probably to send him back into David's household as a spy, so he would know what was going on. And there's this energy building against the king. Now, i got a question for you, and this is the hardest part of all this for me. I've got people skills and I've got sensors. I've got too many sensors. I mean, like my head explodes sometimes because I'm watching people and I'm sensing what all of them are doing and my head just explodes. But I have a sense and ability to kind of sense that something is wrong, right? You probably have this. Ladies, you definitely have this, right? David probably starts to sense that something is wrong in the kingdom. He isn't sure what it is, but he can tell something is wrong. Just like you, you know, you go to work, the boss no longer stops by your office for coffee. And you're like, hmm, I don't know what's wrong, but something is up. Or maybe your, your wife isn't as close as you have felt that she has been and there's unaccounted time for. And you're like, hmm. I don't know what's wrong, but something is wrong. You know, that that moment when you feel like maybe my dream isn't going to come true or something is off. I think at this point in the story, David knows something is going on. He isn't sure what, but something is happening. Verse number 13, then it happens, right? A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. This is that moment. This is that email. This is that phone call. This is that voice message. This is that conversation. This is the pink slip. This is when you go, oh, my goodness. This is the doctor, the prescription, the doctor, when the doctor says, it's not good. It's not going to look like you thought it would look. This is that moment. My son is conspiring to take the kingdom from me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the feeling that he would have? It's that moment when you go, everything was good. I mean, obviously, he had some struggles, but this this is a worst-case scenario. This is lights out. This is, what am I going to do? You know, what, what are my options? Go to battle with my son? He starts to think about those things. Verse 14, then David said, this is incredible. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee. And this is where I said some of you men would say, this is passive, right? This is what I was talking about. Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. Absalom, we must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city on the sword. This is the, the, this powerful man who just says, I'm going to flee. And I start to go, Why? What, what is wrong with you, David? What, what are you doing? Verse 15, the king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord, the king, chooses. King, we don't need to flee. (laughs) We're not going with him. You still have all of us. What do you want to do? Let's fight this thing. The king set out. No, you weren't hearing it. The king set out with his entire household following him. And the people just see Dave leave the city with all his army. Like, that's not like him. I mean, that's the guy we wrote songs about. That's the guy. He, he killed that Goliath. 
He's the best warrior we've ever seen. He's a great leader. He's won battles for us. He always runs to the front of the line. This guy, rumor has it he killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. And Dave just walks right out of the city with all of his people. If he wants the throne, he can have it. If he wants the castle, he can have it. If he wants my money, he can have it. Just, he can have it. And he walks out of the city. Because there's no win. It's one of those situations. I'm going to beat my son and keep the kingdom. I lost. I killed my son. I'm going to lose to my son. It still was a war with my son. I'm going to fight my son, and the outsiders are going to see that we're a nation divided, know that we're weak, and eventually take us over. I'm going to fight my son. The insiders are going to know that dad and son are fighting. And they're not going to respect us, and it'll probably implode from the inside. On all angles, he says, this is lights out on my dreams. This is the end of the road. I'm walking out. Verse 23. It's incredible. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people, David's posse, passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the desert. No war. No nothing, it's over. And then we get this incredible detail that lets us start to see what David is thinking and the depth of conviction that he has developed at this point in his life that when your dreams are evaporating, the only option you have is to trust in the God who is in control. It's your only option. And David is committed to not manipulating the God who's in control either. This is incredible. Verse, uh, verse 24, Zadok, he's the high priest, was there too. And all the Levites, which are all the priests, attending to the tabernacle where all the rites and rituals um, went on. That's what the Levites were. Who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, let me just tell you about the Ark of the Covenant of God. The Ark of the Covenant of God was this symbolic... Um, structure, a visual structure of the presence of God. It was where the presence of God was in the nation of Israel. And this is what's really cool about today. Where's the presence of God today? Someone help me out. Where's the presence of God today? It's in you. That's crazy, right? In this day, the presence of God was in one structure. You have the same thing inside of you. Now, let me tell you about this presence of God. All right. The Ark of the Covenant was where like the Ten Commandments, that that tablet was housed in this little ark. But there's stories throughout the Old Testament about this Ark of the Covenant. Right. It was a special place. God gave specific rules of how you handled it. And whoever had it was blessed. Why? God was with them, which just take it back to today. That presence is in you. So. Think about that this week somewhere along the way, right? The presence of God. So the priests go, let's go, and we'll take this presence of God with us. Now, in the other stories, just real quick, there was a story where someone was kind of taking the the ark, and you couldn't touch it unless you were a cleansed priest. And the guy was trying to do good things with the ark, but it started to fall, and you know what he did? He caught it, and what happened to him? He died on the spot. It's the presence of God. You don't mess with the presence of God, right? There's another story where um, the Philistines accidentally uh, stole it and had it in their possession, 
And the curses upon them were so great that they were like, please just take this thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then there's another story. Um, this is a good one. Um, anybody here have a bad lawn? Right? Anybody here? You, need, you just need to go get the ark and put it in it on, on your front lawn. Because they had the ark of the covenant in a front lawn, and, and the crops grew so much, and the cattle grew so big that it was like, what's going on over there? Oh, they have the ark. So if you want to fix your lawn, just put the ark out there, and your cats will grow real big. And, you know, you shouldn't have cats, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, it was the presence of God, right? It was the presence of God. So these, what, these, what these priests are saying is, hey, Dave, I got one. We'll take this with you. And you know what that means? It's all going to work out. Because if God is with us, we'll kick his butt when he comes for us. Right? That's what they were thinking. Do you want to know what Dave said? Look at, look at, look what Dave said. Um, they set down the ark of God, and Abathur offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. What? What are you saying? Why, why, why would you do that, Dave? I mean, if the ark is with us, that means we can win. That means we will win. If God is for us, who can be against us? Why would you tell us to take it back into the city? And David says, take it back. You know why, Zadok? Because we're manipulating the circumstances. And we're manipulating God. And we're, we're making God be on our side. And I'm not sure that God wants us to take the ark. So I want you to go take that ark back. I'm not going to try to talk God into my will for my life. I am not going to try to talk God into my dreams for my life. I am not going to get angry at God. I am going to completely trust him. And that's what he says in the next verse, verse 25. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes without manipulating anything, without getting angry at anything, without changing anything, without prearranging anything, with nothing. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he, he will fix it. He will give you my dreams. He will bring it to pass. He will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again in other words he says just because the lights have gone out in my dreams the lights have not gone out in my faith <laughs> that's big and as long as you attach your dreams to your faith you run the risk of what Losing faith. Because there's no guarantee that your dreams are going to come to pass. And God never promised that your dreams would come to pass. And David says, my faith is now. Remember when I was younger and I did all that stuff and made a bad situation worse because I thought I had to control? It's not me anymore. I've learned. My faith is greater than my dreams. And in that moment, things change. In that moment, you know what happens? It's one word. Peace. 
It's not me to worry about. I don't got to worry about it. I don't got to worry about it. I have my faith, and that's all that matters. It's up to God, David says, whether I return or not, whether I ever see the ark again. Leave that ark here. Leave it here. If God wants me to come back and see that and have his presence in my life, it will happen. I trust him completely and wholly. What a powerful, powerful lesson. Verse 26, but if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let me, let him do, oh, let him do to me whatever seems good to me. Let him do good to me. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And you know what that involves? Control. And you give it over. And in that moment, you determine my faith isn't going anywhere, no matter what happens to my hopes and my dreams. Look how this ends, verse 30. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. Do you think this is an easy place to get to? <laughs> it's not. When God doesn't give you your dreams and all you have is your faith, you may not just raise your hands and worship and say, praise Jesus. I'm not going to have the family. Praise Jesus. I'm not going to have the life. Praise Jesus. I'm not going to live as many years. No. It's just a brokenness involved. An incredible brokenness. David is weeping as he went. His head is covered and he was barefoot. And all the people with him were sad. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and they took the throne and they took the crown and they took the city and they took the palace and Absalom does something that even pagan kings, it's so crude and it's so rude to his own father that even pagan kings wouldn't do it to the people that they conquered. It's unbelievable. Absalom then in his foolishness gathers his men and he's not happy that he took over the city. Can you believe this? He goes after his father. To kill him. To kill him. What he underestimates is that his dad, daddy, grew up fighting in the fields. And daddy, when cornered, had no other choice. And Absalom took him on. And, and, and Dave said, whatever we do, even if we win, spare the life of my son. Like a, like a dad would. Spare the life of my son. But his, his captain of his army, his generals, captured Absalom, and they didn't spare his life. He died. David, they come to him. The good news is the battle is over, and guess what? You will see the city again. You will see the palace again. It is your palace. It is your city. You've been restored to the throne. And David marches into the city as if he had lost. No triumph. This was all bad. Nothing good. And that's how the story ends. Here's the interesting thing. A thousand years later, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a few thousand yards outside the city, kneels to pray, and he bows, and he says, what? God? Same place, a thousand years later, Jesus kneels and he says, God, 
not my will. God, if I had it my way, I wouldn't go to the cross. That's not my dream. I wouldn't suffer the pain. I wouldn't suffer the humiliation, right? I wouldn't have any of that. But not my will, but thine be done. Now, here's the deal. When you get to this place, it is the most powerful place that you'll ever get to in life. God, my faith is stronger than my hopes and dreams. And more than my hopes and dreams, I value you. So I will trust you over all else. Let me just relay one story to you and and we're done. The most powerful sermon I have ever seen preached was on CNN a couple months ago. I'm not kidding. And I grew up in the church and I've heard a lot of great messages, but I have never seen or heard a more powerful sermon. It's a story and you need to find it. It's your homework assignment. To close out this series, your homework assignment, I don't even know how you find it, but when you do find it, let me know how you found it because I want a copy of it, all right? It is the story, CNN is special. It's the story of Michael Morton. Anybody here see that? All right, Michael Morton. You find his story, you watch his CNN special, and everything that I just said here will be like, whoa, that guy lived it. Let me tell you his story real quick, and it doesn't do justice because you got to see him, you, gotta, you just got to experience his message. The man, Michael Morton, was convicted of murdering his wife. The, the attorney, the DA, the prosecutors did some shoddy work. They convicted him of murdering his wife. Can you imagine the day in court when they say, guilty, life in prison, and you didn't do it? You talk about dreams coming to an end. You talk about like your mind went blank. You got to hear his mind went blank. And he went to jail. He said, in jail, I didn't have time. I didn't have time to pity myself. I didn't have time to think about it. I didn't have time or the, you know, I was in jail. I had to be tough. I I just didn't have, you just had to move on with your life. This is my life. And um, it tells this incredible story. And um, they interviewed prisoners in the, in the special. And uh, everybody in jail is innocent, right? And these prisoners said, but when he told us he was innocent, we believed him. We knew it. We knew it. Eventually, I mean, he went into this places of hard labor in the South. Talks about the conditions. And um, over a period of time, he wasn't a Christian going in. Over a period of time, he turned to God. He had nothing else. And it was a long period of time. It wasn't immediately. And And he describes the worst moment in his life was when his own son said he wanted nothing to do with him. He said that, you know, he said that broke me. So talk about dreams not coming true. Falsely accused. Your wife was murdered. Your son thinks you did it. And he gets old enough and he says, I'm not talking to the person who killed 
my mother and put me through all this? And his response would be, but I didn't. And his own son would say, that's what everybody says. Like, (laughs) what? Right? And then he says, you know, he turned to God. And then at the end, and I'm I'm sitting there just like you. I'm a preacher. I should know how we did it. But I, I'm sitting there, tell me, tell me what it is. What, what did you do? And he closes this thing with, I, I, I go to my kids all the time and say, what were those statements? And if my wife ever gives me permission to get a tattoo, I'm going to get these tattooed on me. Maybe right here. Down, no, I'm just kidding. Just, no, but the tattoo, I am going to get a tattoo. And it's going to be around these concepts because it is the most powerful thing. He said this. <laughs> He said this, at the end of 25 years, let me tell you how it ends. The, uh, someone got a hold of his case and amazingly drove it through. And the details of what the, of what the um, um, prosecutors uh, swept under the rug uh, came out. Those prosecutors were charged. And I saw recently, they, you know, I think they got banished. Nothing, nothing as bad as the 25 years the guy spent in jail. What does he do? My dreams didn't come true. I'm going to be angry. Settle the score. And the question is, if he does that, does he get his 25 years back? Doesn't, does he? He's just angry and ruined the rest of his life. And here is this guy standing there with peace, like you could see it in his eyes. And he was just like, how? And he says, I came to the conclusion of three things, three things. He said, number one, I concluded that there's a God. He said, number two, I concluded that he loves me. And number three, he's smarter than me. I was like, oh, whoa, what did you say? There's a God. There's no question he loves me because he sent his son to die for me. And yeah, I've been through a whole bunch of crap. But I'm going to trust him. That he knows what he's doing. And here's this guy, really, on CNN, telling an unbelievable story to the whole world about God, about his life. And I'm sitting here talking to you today. There's a God. He loves me. He wouldn't have sent his son to die for me. Yeah, my dreams might not have come true, but he loves me. He does. I know he does. I'm going to live with him for eternity, no matter how bad this life is. He loves me. I mean, he's so good to me. I can talk to him, even in my struggle. He loves me. And you know what? He's smarter than me. I'll trust him. I'll trust him. That's the key. That's what David learned. And that's what we learned. And I'm telling you right now, when you get to that place, because that guy, that guy was there. I'm not even close to where that guy is. Not even close. Nor will I ever be unless I go to jail for 25 years. Dear Jesus, you know. That guy was dead on right. And he said it from experience. And there was such power. Right? There's such power. When you get to the place where you trust God over all else, It's an unbelievable place of strength, and your story is so strong. Or you can stay bitter, tell it to everyone who will listen how you got ripped off, 
and nobody really cares because they have the same story to tell. The strength is that moment when you just say, God, my faith is way more important to me than my dreams. Let's pray.